Hello, and welcome to Filmly Matters, a podcast hosted by a couple of married cinephiles, Katie and Josh, where we talk about some of our favorite movies and discuss and dissect some of the particulars. So this week we are talking about The Bishop's Wife and The Preacher's Wife. So this was Josh's idea. Um, I had never seen either one of these movies before. Um, And we thought that it would be a nice seasonal topic to cover both films, both individually and sort of compare and contrast the two. So we'll start chronologically and we'll start with The Bishop's Wife, which is also known as Carrie and the Bishop's Wife. And it's a 1947 Samuel Goldwyn romantic comedy. And it was directed by Henry Coster and starred Cary Grant, Loretta Young, and David Niven. And the plot is basically that there is a bishop who is trying to secure funding for a new cathedral. And in his obsession with securing funding, he's neglected his home life and um, including his wife and his child pretty severely. And he feels he's at sort of a crossroads and is having a lot of difficulty with securing that funding. So he prays for guidance on what to do and how to get the cathedral built. And suddenly we get an angel in the shape of Cary Grant <laughs> with very chiseled features and this angel's name is Dudley <laughs> which is not the most angelic sounding name but um, a very human angel I would say yes. or is this, he has a lot of personality yes that he does he definitely uh, enjoys all the things that earthly life has to offer to an extent he has a lot of fun yeah he definitely has a lot of fun has a good sense of humor and so the angel dudley doesn't reveal himself to anybody except the bishop at first the only other character in the movie that knows his identity is the professor and the professor kind of figures it out and the professor is an old family friend of the bishop and his wife julia Uh, and he is a non-religious individual his name is professor wetheridge and um i guess we'll break down the cast so carrie grant as we mentioned is dudley the angel loretta young plays julia brahm david niven plays bishop henry brahm and monty woolley plays professor wetheridge Um, there are other individuals in the cast but none of them are really that terrifically important (laughs) as far as names goes and uh i thought it was interesting that david niven who plays the bishop was originally cast as the angel um and an actor named dana andrews was cast as the bishop and Teresa wright was cast as the wife but wright uh had to bow out of the project due to pregnancy and then 
Cary Grant was brought in, but Cary Grant wanted to play the angel, so the role of the bishop was given to Niven. Yes. <laughs> See, this is so old Hollywood, because uh, Samuel Gold won in 1946, uh, so the year prior to The Bishop's Wife. He had produced a film called uh, The Best Years of Our Lives, uh, which is a lovely little um, picture about uh, coming home from war, and it's a romantic drama. So it's a really good movie. Uh, it killed the Oscars in 1946. Uh, it won eight Academy Awards, and it was nominated for nine, and it won all the biggies. So it was best picture, best director, best screenplay, actor, supporting actor. So he killed it with that film. So he was so meticulous. In The Best Years of Our Lives in 1946, Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright uh, fall in love, and they are counterparts in that. So he was going to bring those two back for The Bishop's Wife yeah. uh, because there was already this romantic chemistry and the best years of our lives was such a big hit. Uh, so they weren't able to do that, obviously, because of Teresa Wright's pregnancy. So they traded Teresa Wright uh, from RKO. Uh, she went over to RKO in exchange for Loretta Young, uh, and then who got to come over to uh, Metro Goldwyn. So, uh, to me, that is so funny because when you look at film history, that kind of stuff happened all the time. There were all these trades and, you know, handoffs and that. So, that killed David Niven's part of actually getting to play the bishop. Uh, so, I mean, because, I mean, get real, if it comes down to him and Cary Grant, uh, we're talking in 1946 they shot, and then it was it actually released in 47. If Cary Grant wanted to be the bishop, he was going to be the bishop. Or, I'm sorry, if, if Cary Grant wanted to be Dudley, yeah. he was going to be Dudley. So there was no question about it, how Hollywood worked at that time. So Niven just kind of had to suck it up. But uh, So there was that history beforehand um, with that. Also... I had heard that uh, in my research that uh, Goldwyn, after winning all those Academy Awards from the best years of our lives, was extremely meticulous about how this film was shot. Mm -hmm. So they said that actually was a real home that was the bishop's house. We had oh. that discussion in that. And he was so unhappy with it after the first few weeks of filming, he had it taken apart and had a whole new house built. Oh my God. <laughs> and uh, he did not like halfway through the film uh, how things were going. So he paid off the director and brought in Henry Coster. Okay. So Henry was not the original director. And this ought to show you how much money he had to throw around on this. He felt that there, that the chemistry lacked uh, in some of the dialogue as the scenes went on. Mm -hmm. So he hired Billy Wilder to come in mm -hmm. and redo some of the script. So he he spared no expense at all uh, wanting to sweep the Oscars again in 47. And the film got some nominations. It was nominated for Best Picture uh, and okay. Best Director. Sadly, it didn't win, but he was really uh, wanting to, to pull a two-year-in-a-row deal there. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's really interesting about the about the house because you never can tell with older movies like that whether they're just really well built sets. Yeah. Because a lot of times, especially with big production movies like that, you know, they, especially during that time, things were were just built better. Yeah. And had more yeah. detail and stuff. There was no holding back on the on the production scale of this film. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting um, that the you know the premiere had critical success but the film didn't do very well at the box office at first because just seeing the title the bishop's wife people thought that it was a religious film and so uh goldwyn uh decided to retitle it carrie and the bishop's wife for some u.s markets while adding a black text box with the question have you heard about carrie and the bishop's wife on posters and markets where the film kept the original title Hmm. and they thought that by adding uh grant's first name that would kind of help downplay the uh religious aspect of it and interesting and uh where, where they did that the film's business actually increased by as much as 25 percent. so he oh, was right okay. <laughs> he was accurate in that um and i thought it was interesting that it was filmed in minneapolis minnesota normally whenever i think of old hollywood movies i think of everything being filmed in los angeles yeah yeah Um, in the film uh, the actual film itself uh, has a very new york vibe to it mm -hmm. uh, as far as the whenever you see the actual um, going out and about on the nightlife as such um, it that doesn't scream minneapolis to me at all no and especially with like with all the taxi cabs and with the the walkability it felt of the city yeah it didn't feel like new york at all Mm -mm. didn't feel like minneapolis oh right yeah it didn't feel like minneapolis at all Uh, well i think that uh first of all um you can't go wrong with the cast that they ended up with i had uh, henry coster had actually um dubbed loretta young as being the uh, easiest performer that he had ever worked with that she needed no direction at all uh, and though i think uh, in her role, she's very uh, convincing, and I think that she brings um, some heart and character to this film. I don't really think that um, it was her performance was great, but I just don't think that it was that emotional of a, emotionally. I don't think there was a lot of emotional attachment to her character for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't get that. Don't get me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, she's amazing. She has the most beautiful eyes I've ever saw in my entire life. She's very uh, pretty and very, very, very convincing. However, I think that all of the on-screen uh, charisma and uh, energy in this film is definitely with Cary Grant and David Niven. I think those two play off each other very, very well. Um, There was some comedic relief there, and Mm. then also there was some seriousness. Uh, I liked how that Cary Grant could kind of wind you in whenever it was time to get serious and whenever he was actually making you know a point on morality or on um some kind of subject matter to get your attention it kind of felt like a priest 
was talking to you, even though, you know, mm -hmm. he's supposed to be the angel, it got serious all of a sudden. So I think the real stars of this uh, film were definitely Nevin and uh, obviously Cary Grant, but those two, uh, I mean, I think they just hammered it out. It was like an Abbott and Costello. I felt like you were watching for a little bit because they, they did great. Yeah, there are definitely some moments of really good physical humor that are involved um, that I really enjoyed. And yeah, I would I would agree that they definitely had a lot of chemistry together. Um, I, I feel like oftentimes with older movies like this of this era, sometimes the acting feels a little bit flat mm -hmm. to me, where it feels like they're just kind of reciting lines in a pleasant way. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't okay. always it doesn't always feel genuine. Mm -hmm. um, it just feels like very much like acting of the era, and sometimes, uh, even though I, I definitely picked up on a lot of sincere emotionality, like from Julia and stuff. Sometimes her acting feels a little bit not really flat, but just kind of like monot. I don't know. It, it all just kind of like felt like the same tone. Yes, kind of yeah, most it of was, yeah. it was, and I shook that up. I didn't really take that as bad acting. No. I kind of just felt like that was her character. Yeah. She was the bishop's wife, um, you know, and she was always expected to, you know, always... Uh, I think she was always expected to present herself in such a way. And I think that that is one thing that's really, uh, that did kind of hit home in reality. Um, because especially within certain denominations, within certain uh, eras of time that we see definitely such as this, there was not really a whole lot of, um, you know, letting your hair down even at home you know, mm -hmm. whenever you're in the ministry in in certain circumstances such as that. So I think that that definitely was her character. She was always expected to conduct herself in a certain way as being the bishop's wife in a very affluent area like that. Mm -hmm. So she never really could. I think she was the most herself uh, in character um, whenever she did have that interaction with Dudley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she seemed to feel uh, like she was able to relax <laughs> yeah. around him. She wasn't having to uh, worry about impressing any people on any committees or, you know, making sure that she was maintaining precise levels of decorum all the time. Not that they went, like, buck wild or anything, but, right. I mean... She had somebody to hang out with who made her laugh <laughs> right. and could have a good time with her. Um, yeah, she was very much a woman of the time. Uh, very ladylike, mm -hmm. very stereotypically kind of ladylike. Um, being a, a good wife, quote unquote. And, and speaking of Cary Grant, I feel like I haven't actually seen a whole lot of old Hollywood movies and I haven't seen whole lots of Cary Grant movies mm. but I think with this character especially he really put all of that charisma that I think he's well known for out on display for sure and just thinking back to oh brother where art thou it 
made me think of like George Clooney, that kind right. of like natural right charisma and charm that they can just turn on and off. Right. Know? And everything that Cary Grant does in any movie that I have seen him in just feels totally natural. Yeah. And I mean, he's just he's he was a really gifted performer. And I always forget that he was British too. Was he really? Yes. So that, you know, talk about an actor, you know, is that that just nothing screams British to me about him. No. But yeah, he seems like just the all-American man. But so, yeah, that he definitely was the face of, of Hollywood. So, and for those reasons. Yeah. And David Niven was really good, too. I will say that. You know, he he definitely played his part uh, very well with that. And apparently, uh, within that time period, he was considered um, kind of a stud, too. So, oh, really? My How Times Have Changed, yes. But, yeah, he was he was considered quite a, quite a sexy man in the 40s, so... All right. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they just had a couple beefcakes uh, rolling out that film. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny while we were, uh, after we'd watched this movie and um, working on notes this week, I had been, I just finished it today, but I'd been reading this book called, um, it's called Chaos. Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. And I came across a really uh, uh, delightfully amusing anecdote about Cary Grant uh-huh. <laughs> that I wasn't expecting to find about him and LSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, during the late 50s, uh, under the suggestion and supervision of his psychiatrist, Cary Grant was administered over 100 LSD tablets over a number of weekly sessions. Hmm. So that's a lot of LSD. And he described experiencing a form of rebirth during these trips. And during, I'd say so. <laughs> I would imagine. And during one memorable experience, he related that he pictured himself as, quote, a giant penis launching off from Earth like a spaceship. Oh, my. That's ridiculous. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> so I just I just thought that was a really fun uh kind of anecdote there about Cary Grant. He may not have had his wings uh, in The Preacher's Wife as the Angel Dudley, but he uh, definitely had them wings off the uh, camera for sure if he was prescribed that kind of LSD. So, well. Every time Cary Grant takes LSD, an angel gets his wings. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Moving on. I guess, well, I mean, I just, I never really quite understood why he was so obsessed with building a cathedral. Like, there wasn't really a whole lot of um, character development, I didn't think, in the movie. So, you never quite, like, understood what his motivations were, or how he ended up there, or what denomination he was a part of, or... Well, know, they like, Episcopalian, I mean, that's very what I, obviously. That's what I yeah. assumed, but... Yeah, and I think that... I think that that definitely, um, I think that personally, uh, and it, I could be way off, but I think that that was a part of the theme and the message also mm-hmm. is that we lose sight, uh, especially in religious organizations, mm-hmm. you lose sight as to what everything is all about sometimes getting racked up in the 
formality of things Mm -hmm. you know i think it was interesting that in the end you know when mrs hamilton tells him you know that she's decided to not donate that money to the cathedral and spread it out over different charitable organizations to help the needy Mm -hmm. you know it was like no big deal you mm-hmm. know he, he you know the bishop henry didn't care uh he was still worried about the cathedral mm-hmm. so you know i think that that proves a lot you know that sometimes in the grandiose scheme of things we forget what's important and and why we're even really there you know mm-hmm. um uh, for some reason, that kept drawing me to um, another group of Episcopalians that I knew. Uh, that I, we were, I had talked to them about church experience, and they had talked about um, Christmas. Mm-hmm. How that growing up, and you know, through their younger years in church, Christmas morning, they would always have the Christmas morning service, even after midnight mass. And oh, there were hundreds of people, and it was so wonderful, and this, that, and the other. And then as the years went by, it dwindled down and dwindled down and dwindled down. And then finally, it got to the point of somebody um, getting there early to set up chairs, and then they just set up a few chairs up around the altar because there weren't even enough people to have it in the chapel anymore. And so it got to the point, you know, there was less than 10 people consecutively through a few years, uh, counting the organist and the priest and everybody else. They said, finally, one Sunday morning, they just said, wait a minute. Uh, The guy who was telling me the story actually just said, why are we doing this? still what is the point of getting up and getting dressed and coming here and doing all of this um whenever you know there's only five of us you know who aren't working as a part of the service here for this and and you know they said that it was kind of the deal well it's christmas we have to do that well do we really you know so i think i don't know why but that story pops into my head whenever Mm -hmm. i think about the bishop's wife uh, is sometimes we just lose lose point and i think maybe that's why our bishop henry should have just said you know why am i even doing this why why do we need to build this big church is it to support the masses or is it just for our own glorification yeah i think the film also pointed out that difference in priorities and what's really important to showing how hard he was working in trying to get all this fundraising done and how much he was stressing out and he was you know sacrificing his family and everything that was important and he also stopped caring about the church that he had started in right and you see how much that church is struggling and is imminently going to close down and he could absolutely care less (laughs) Right. And I think that highlighted just his shift in character and getting caught up in all the stuff that Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes comes up in any kind of church, whether it's liturgical based. Mm or not and that goes even beyond the church um coming from uh, growing up in a lower income community and then seeing um you know other areas 
uh, that are lower income and that too and that was what much worse off than what we were one other thing that you see is a common theme uh, in American culture is with uh, athletes you know mm -hmm. you have a lot of uh, inner city areas that are um, terrible even some in project state and then you will have uh, a young man or a young woman go off and become a professional athlete and then you know it was their community a lot of times and the people that got them there and then they never look back you know a lot of times you'll never see uh, them actually come back and do anything uh, to represent their roots kind of a silly film that represents that well um, is that film uh, was a lottery ticket with uh, it was a, a comedy that came out a few years back a black comedy but um, that's what it was all about um, is that you know people not remembering where they come from once they actually um, make it in life and so that's that's kind of what was resembled to me also with this how easily he forgot about uh, was it St. Thomas in the film the church I think it was St. Timothy St. Timothy yes it was yeah how easily he forgot about St. Timothy um, and was just more worried about the cathedral yeah, it made him really, really unlikable for a good chunk of the film, for yeah. me. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, he was a real jerk um, to pretty much everybody, but particularly his wife. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he... Yeah, I didn't really like him very much through most of the movie. Because <laughs> okay. he, he was just an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to put it very bluntly. Yeah. He was not a very nice man. Well, yeah. I don't know. You get... You definitely get the... They set it up for you, you know, that things were much happier and that he was much better in his profession mm -hmm. when he was a parish priest. Yeah. You know, and when he was at St. Timothy, you get that, that he really cared and that he was really doing something. But, um, you know, boy, it's that that notoriety and fame, it gets gets to so many people. Yeah, and I can only imagine how exhausting a job that is when you have all these people clawing at you, needing something, right. or wanting something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, by, by the end of the movie, he, you know, shapes up and mm -hmm. becomes more back to himself. But, you know, when the movie starts, you're kind of thrown in the middle yeah. of this, of this all this conflict and stuff that's going on. So you're like, I don't like him. Yeah. <laughs> And the worst, um, if I had to complain about the film, the worst part about it was uh, me being the sermon junkie that I am, that you didn't get to hear the rest of the Christmas sermon. Because yeah. it started out really good. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it really had me on the edge of my seat, and I wanted to hear the whole thing. But so now I forever wonder what the rest of that Christmas sermon was that was being delivered at St. At Timothy. Yeah. It, yeah, it started out really well, and then they just kind of cut off. And <laughs> yeah, that was the end. But yeah. um, good film, though. Good film. Yeah, it was. Um, I enjoyed it. I did too. It's it was relevant, obviously, in 1947, and it's still relevant today. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we can. Uh, 
move on now to the next film. So next we move on to The Preacher's Wife, which was a 1996 American comedy drama uh, that was directed by Penny Marshall and starred Denzel Washington, Whitney Houston, and Courtney B. Vance. And of course, it was a remake of the 1947 original film that we just talked about. But there were, you know, like a couple changes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, So it starts with a voiceover by a child named Jeremiah who is, um, rather than the daughter Debbie of the couple in the first movie, we have a son named Jeremiah who's younger than, than the Debbie in the other movie. Um, he's probably like four. He's five. Oh, he's five? Okay. Yeah, they mentioned that in the film. Oh, okay. I thought he was more like four. So here, instead of a bishop, we have a reverend named Henry Biggs who's played by Courtney B. Vance. And he is the preacher of a small and struggling African-American Baptist church in New York City. Um, the church... Methodist. Uh, Wikipedia said they were Baptist. Okay. I thought they were Methodist, too. Yeah, there's nothing Baptist about Yeah, there's... Yeah, Methodist. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> okay, but whatever, that's fine. Go ahead. Yeah. Wait, Wikipedia. Wait, wait, Wikipedia said they was Baptist. Okay. Um, oh, and sure. and that there's, like, a note in here, too, about, like, the set design and stuff and how mm-hmm. they were... They filmed in a Methodist church, mm-hmm. but they were, like... Um, they renovated and built, rebuilt things and stuff inside the church. Like, it was a real functional church that had a congregation and stuff. Mm -hmm. And the congregation of the church was Methodist, but they made changes in the church to make it feel more Baptist, which it didn't feel Baptist at all. not to me at all. So I don't know where... Interesting. Okay, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) So I don't know who guided that production. Yeah, because that... I was going to say, yeah, there's nothing about that that resembles. <laughs> but, um, uh, so, yeah, so the church is struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have declining membership. Uh, there are things going wrong structurally. They're having financial difficulties. And uh, Henry feels like he's being pulled in 10 million different directions by all of his different parishioners and their needs. And in with him dealing with all these stressors and stuff, he's neglecting his home life. Very much like the first movie. So I felt a lot more empathy for Henry in this film because whenever he was away from home and away from his wife, he was doing good things for and other he really people. Cared. You could tell too. Yeah. Yeah, that he was he was the real deal and that you know, his heart and soul was actually in the ministry and helping other people. And just like everyone in their professions, obviously he had hit a burnout period, Mm -hmm. but you know, he, he didn't neglect his people in any way, uh, even though he was struggling personally. Yeah, because even the most passionate and caring people who are really sincere in what they believe, what they want to do, and the kind of vocation they want can still get burnt out right. whenever they're so overwhelmed all of the time and can't seem to catch a break. And I think that was with him. Right. Because um, I never doubted for a second his sincerity in wanting to help others. And that seemed to be his 
whole motivation in that, you know, this was genuinely like a calling for him, this right. profession. Much like the original film, uh, Henry prays for guidance because he is being pulled in so many directions and he really needs a break and he really needs some help. And then we get Dudley. <laughs> we, get, Angel Dudley. we get another Dudley played by the equally handsome and charismatic Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, although his arrival <laughs> in the first film, Cary Grant is just strolling through the streets. Mm-hmm. He's just there. And in this movie, Denzel plummets from the sky and falls into the snow <laughs> yeah. and scares the bejesus out of Jeremiah and his friend Hakeem, who are mm-hmm. playing out in the yard. <laughs> um, which, is, which is quite delightful. And... Uh, yeah, it's interesting that the differences in the ways that the characters and stuff are, are developed and the ways that they take them and and just how much... Like, Cary Grant enjoyed... His Dudley enjoyed being amongst people, I think. Right. And he really enjoyed Julia's company. But this Dudley definitely enjoys inhabiting the human form in taking part in all the little pleasures like food and stuff. Right. And unlike the other Dudley, this one, you get hints of him having been a human being before. And, you know, he he died sort of like in the prime of his youth as, as he appears in the film mm-hmm. um, at that age. At some point in the past, so I would assume probably sometime in the 20s or 30s, based on his dress. And he, you know, he talked about, um, he mentioned that to Henry whenever he was kind of at different points, like trying to introduce himself and convince him that he was, that he is who he says he is. You know, clearly I was cut down in the, in the prime of my youth yeah, or something like that. Um, and so I thought that was interesting. So, like, he was really enjoying pizza and <laughs> hot dogs and later ice skating, of course. And, yeah, so, I mean, he was just, like, a charming, bubbly, happy-go-lucky kind of angel. And I like that in both films because it seems like that it gets the point across that... Uh, angels don't have to be so angelic because you know there there's always the the stories that there's angels all among us you know in different types of forms and fashions and so I think that that's kind of cool because um, you know here we have two angels that do come down and they do good and they give guidance and they give good direction but at the same time you see the very human side of them also yeah because even though they're heavenly beings they're not perfect right which you know just sitting here thinking about it it kind of harkens it kind of harkens to a big part of the Christmas story, you know, in Christianity, the, the incarnation mm-hmm. and, you know, Jesus coming down and, and inhabiting an earthly form as a human being. So, of course, even though theologically it's, you know, Jesus is considered to be perfect, he definitely 
behaved in certain ways that weren't perfect. Sure. And he, sure, you know, a lot of human. Yeah, human design. and divine. So just that whole notion of the angel inhabiting a human form and also mm-hmm. not being perfect that just made me think of the kind of like Christian Christmas story yeah, too. I like that. And I think maybe. So I think it's all on how you interpret it mm-hmm. too. So mm-hmm. I think that a film does its job whenever it whenever you can make those kind of revelations. Mm-hmm. The 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 characters in this film felt a lot more fleshed out and three-dimensional mm-hmm. to me than the 1947 version. They they felt more like human beings. Yeah. This film was definitely a lot more relatable. Um, mm. Not only, you know, it's easy to say that as being a, a child in the 90s, but I think just even as an adult now, mm-hmm. watching both films back-to-back, um, and even with us being Episcopalian, I think it's still more relatable in the 1996 Preacher's Wife version, mm-hmm. uh, even though they're Baptists. Uh, it felt a little bit more uh, human, I think, mm-hmm. because, you know, you you didn't have the grandiose house. You didn't have the help. You didn't, you know, to me, in 1947's Bishop's Wife, it felt as though that it was only just the characters. I never really felt anything outside of, you know, um, when the children are playing in the snow. I never really felt like there was a world outside of those characters. Yeah. In The Preacher's Wife, you're seeing, uh, to me, it just felt like everyday life. It really brought you and drew you straight into the actual community around you. That wasn't a great place. Um, I liked it that there were problems. You know, the, the church building was falling apart. You know, the water heater goes out. You know, there's... Um, the boiler. Oh, yeah, the boiler. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Um, so the boiler goes out. The, you know, there's issues on social justice. Mm-hmm. There's issues about the, the question of one's own morality. Uh, and actually, you know, do you give up what you believe in, which you know is, you know, going to make you a sellout, but it'll temporarily fix all your problems you know so i think it brought it down to a level where you know there was some low hanging fruit that people could find a whole lot more relatable in this film Uh, which I, i enjoyed though i really enjoyed because not only is it being a christmas story but also it just really makes you stop and think about what's important in life yeah, and I think those elements of the two different films are indicative of the times that they were set in, where, like in the 40s, especially, I think there was probably more of a focus on creating this kind of fantasy image of perfect families and perfect lives, and, you know, mm-hmm. everything's pristine and wonderful and everything's going to work out great in the end and you know blah 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 and uh whereas by the time we get into the 90s I think there's a little bit more of a shift in displaying reality as it is for different kinds of people 
And while there was still a lot of issues with different kinds of representation well into the 90s, I think this film still did a better job of capturing a more realistic image of a community. Yeah, I agree. Um, And I think that, you know, it all comes together nicely. mm -hmm. It doesn't have to, you know, whereas... um, and I'm, I'm maybe stepping way out of line here, but you know, whereas in the gold one, 47 version, you know, obviously the the big intent was to get those Oscars. You know, that was that was the whole thing. The film was being built around wanting to relive that Oscar experience mm-hmm. that they had in 1946. Whereas, uh, you know, in the 1996 version, you knew we weren't weren't going to get any Academy Awards, you know. You knew that wasn't going to be the case. Um, you knew that um, regardless of how it went, it was not going to be a big box office success, even with names like Denzel and Whitney Houston. And the film did well, but uh, they knew that it wasn't going to be number one, you know. So I think that there was, a, and Penny Marshall, I think, had always been um, a great example of a director because she always just goes for the heart and soul. You could always tell she's not. Uh, she didn't always go for, you know, just the ticket sales. There was always a message in everything that she's ever done. Um, plus, not to mention, um, there's uh, a hell of some great supporting cast members in oh, this yeah. film. Um, great, <laughs> great black movie. Uh, you know, you got Gregory Hines, you got Loretta mm-hmm. Devine, Jennifer Lewis, Paul Bates. Everybody just comes together and it makes a really, really fun, good movie. Uh, Sissy Houston, Whitney's mother, has a small role in the film. Um, I hate to say this, but, you know, I've never gotten ever any um a lot of character development Mm -hmm. out of any performance that whitney houston has ever given Mm -hmm. she's had a lot of really really good movies Mm -hmm. and i loved whitney love her still but um she was not a great actress and you never really felt i never really felt any connection to any performance that she's ever given you know even when she's the the main star like in Mm -hmm. in preacher's wife and in the bodyguard um things like that you never she seems to always have a barrier where you could never actually draw in and get close to her um but i think that between Denzel and Courtney B. Vance and the amazing supporting cast in this, you love all the characters. Uh, everybody does a really, really good job. Yeah, you you really get an idea of who each of these characters are without any great deal of exposition about their backstory or you know a lot of dialogue or anything about them particularly i think mm-hmm. i think the acting kind of speaks for the characters and all of the actors are so talented that they just 
you know, you, you get a sense of who these people are. Yeah. Um, just through their performances. And, I mean, Courtney B. Vance did a phenomenal job. He did. In this film. And I'm just left here wondering, why is he not a bigger star? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I probably know the answer to that question. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean... He did, he did a very, very good job. And I thought, um, you know, he made... Um, I always looked to him in the film. Um, I never saw him as an actor from the time the film starts and finishes. Mm-hmm. He feels like uh, a preacher. He feels like a man that even though he's short in stature, when he walks in the room, that this is someone that you stop what you're doing and give respect to when he mm-hmm. speaks you stop and you listen um, so I think he did a, a very phenomenal job uh, in portraying uh, a minister yeah he felt like a real person yeah in that throughout the whole movie um, and of course I love Loretta Devine yeah. She's just, <laughs> yeah, she's always so fun. Anytime I see her in a movie, I just smile. And yeah. automatically I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. Yeah. Whatever well, she does. And then, you know, you got uh, you got Whitney Houston and Loretta Devine and Gregory Hines all back together again after this. Because in 1995, they were all uh, together in Waiting to Exhale. So mm-hmm. um, they came back together in this film. So hopefully they probably had some off-screen and on-screen chemistry um, Mm -hmm. that they had brought back to picture, so. Yeah. I think back to, like, Whitney Houston, she always, in a lot of her movies, she seems to kind of play versions of herself. Yeah. (laughs) There always seems to be a way to work in some singing, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, Which, I mean, the soundtrack, woo, this is... uh, that you know who doesn't love the music for this film too um it's actually the best-selling gospel album of all time oh well there you go (laughs) which i was really shocked by i mean because the gospel um genre has so many different kinds of big names oh yeah you know within that genre yeah in particular i was very surprised that this soundtrack is the best-selling gospel album of all time. Yeah. That is really Well, surprising. that's great. I mean, you know, I, I really do that. And I know uh, in the album, because I've had it, mm-hmm. um, uh, I can tell you, there's, there's songs on there that weren't in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so that... Um, take that for what it is but i mean so the you even get even more out of that and then shirley caesar who's uh, one of the most amazing gospel performers of all time is still held that way she's uh, her and whitney have a song together on that so i'm sure that helped the sales a lot too mm-hmm. and then um there were but anyway without getting into all of that yeah so amazing the music's amazing and um perhaps it overshadowed the film a little bit but um still a great movie yeah and they made um julia's character have this kind of subplot in the movie that focused on her former singing career kind Mm -hmm. of on like Mm-hmm. Within the community, and I forgot to mention Lionel Richie. 
yes in that great group of supporting cast members how dare i because he does you know he's he's really good too even though he's not in it much you know you get a lot of um you feel like you get some of his own personality and that he, well cast i'll say that he's very well cast for that part it was his feature film acting debut was it really mm-hmm. okay i mm-hmm. didn't realize that i didn't either <laughs> I, I did, his character felt very skeezy really to me he felt like a slime ball to me really? yeah. i didn't think so because it came across to me like he was suddenly trying to like hit on whitney houston's on julia i don't think so i think really? it was he was subtly trying to get her back at jazzy's okay i mean you know you saw how she how she killed just in that one performance yeah and obviously that's what she always did you know he made the comment you know well now uh, all she ever does is sing for the Lord. Mm-hmm. And then it's, oh, well, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. Well, no, I mean, he wants her back out there filling seats, you know, every Friday and Saturday night at his nightclub, obviously. So, yeah. I mean, that was, that's the impression that I got was that, um, you know, he misses the days of her getting up to the mic and killing it. Yeah, it just seemed like there was a little bit of, like, uh, machismo kind of competition between him and Dudley uh, yeah. when they were at the nightclub, and it just kind of felt like, you know, he he might have been interested in her at some point, too. Uh, maybe, yeah. Maybe, but, maybe I didn't see that. A female so. could could see through that. Yeah, he kind of skis me out a little bit, <laughs> his character. Uh, but, yeah. Noodles agrees with me. Mm. That was just the impression I got of his character. Oh, okay. Um so so uh the the picture was uh developed by Denzel Washington's Monday Lane Entertainment. And um something I thought that was really interesting was that the role of Julia was written with Whitney Houston in mind, but Denzel said that he first considered Julia Roberts for the role. I'd heard that. I remember when the film first came out, I remember that. And then the fact that she couldn't sing was what um, ruined that because they really, they did not want to do a voiceover, which I agree for this this type of film. Uh, But yeah, I very much remember with entertainment tonight and all that when that first came out that she was the one who was originally in mind which is mind-boggling to me that doesn't make any sense well i mean you gotta think in 1996 you know julia roberts was still um that was in her prime so Yeah, I mean, I know that she was, like, one of the biggest stars of all time, but to me it's just, like, picturing this one random white lady in the middle of yeah. this African-American community. Um, it just, I don't know, I just can't... I can't picture Julia Roberts in that movie. Yeah. So I'm really glad that they shifted <laughs> that casting decision to one that made a little bit more sense. Um yeah, so they filmed um, in a Methodist church in New Jersey, and the crew for the for the film renovated the interiors. Um, yeah, so this is the production team designed a pulpit and altar rails that more accurately reflected the design of Baptist churches. 
I don't know who they consulted for that. <laughs> um, and after filming, the church kept the pulpit, and the production crew worked with architects from the United Methodist Church to design and install rails more fitting of the Methodist style. Um, uh, about a quarter of the church's memberships uh, were hired as extras, and the church used the rental fees paid by the production to replace its boiler and HVAC system. Okay, so good. I think that's kind of a fun coincidence that they actually did need to replace their boiler, yeah. and they were able to. So it's interesting that there were uh, like multiple different kinds of filming locations. So they filmed in New Jersey, they filmed in Manhattan. Um, they filmed, they, they even went all the way up to Maine to film, like, the ice skating scenes. Okay. But they had unseasonably warm weather, so they had to bring in, like, snow and ice machines. Oh, no. To, like, refreeze it because Maine was unseasonably warm at the wow. time. okay. I just think that's kind of funny that something like that happened. And then there were apparently, like, a couple different crazy accidents and stuff that happened while they were filming in New York. Hmm. Uh, and issues that happened while they were uh, in in production there, like robberies were common in the area in New York that they filmed at, and um, when when f- while filming exteriors and interiors at a church in Parsonage in Yonkers, a building a block away caught fire, and two children died, mm. and one crew member rushed a ladder over to the burning building to help save the life of a four-year-old. Oh, wow. In that the weekend before filming at the church, an elderly parishioner fell, broke her hip, and died. And in the middle of filming, a crew member was struck by a car and killed. And then the production schedule was also compromised after Houston refused to sing in the mornings. Wow. <laughs> so there were just all kinds the, of production it's issues. It's always the films with the religious elements that have the freaky um, problems, whether it was a preacher's wife and then um, the Passion of the Christ. You know, that was, there were so many different things that went on um, in the filming of that. That oh, really? were, oh yeah, terrible, terrible things happened mm. around the filming. And then same thing with The Omen, too. Yeah. Um, a lot of bad stuff happened um, filming that film with, um, you know, uh, so it's and the just something. Yeah, and The Exorcist, too. So maybe I feel a future episode in, <laughs> in the making here. So I thought they were both enjoyable adaptations of... Uh, Apparently there's a source novel called The Bishop's Wife that these were both um, adapted from. Um, I thought they were both really enjoyable holiday movies. I hadn't seen either one before, as I mentioned earlier, and I enjoyed them both. They're very different, and yet... I mean, for, for two movies that are based on the same story... They're very, you know, unique. Yeah, um, for sure. They they very much stand on their own, and they both feature some really standout performances by certain cast members. Um. So I I really enjoyed them both. I would say, um, I would probably give them both a solid three out of five. You know, not anything 
that was that would necessarily be Oscar worthy from either film, and not anything that you know I would you know there's not like a whole lot of meat yeah to yeah, either film, but they're both fun yeah. They are. They're fun. And then there's a splash of, um, you know, there's a splash of um, uniqueness in these films. Um, both did a grand, uh, grand job with casting. So I agree. I give both three and a half out of five stars. I think that um it's a good family film both of them i think you could sit down with the whole family and watch either one and get a lot out of it there's a good message to both so i think um i definitely highly recommend um this these christmas movies uh the bishop's wife and the preacher's wife mm-hmm and if you've seen one and not seen the other, then I would recommend kind of rounding your experience out just to kind of get a different for sure perspective on it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So that that covers this episode. All right. And we've decided that for the next episode, we're kind of having a broad theme of New Year, New You. Yeah, so new year, new me. Gives you all the more reason to come back. <laughs> what will we choose? Yeah. So, with that being said, we will... We're signing out on this rainy evening. This, yes, this, this rainy New Year's Eve. I'm bidding adieu to 2020. Mm-hmm. So we will hope to see you back in the next episode. And as we sign off, I am Josh... And I'm Katie. Have a good night. If you liked what you heard, then please rate, review, and subscribe. That kind of feedback really helps small podcasts like ours get noticed and heard by more people. If you're listening on Spotify, you can hit like and follow instead. If you want to send us a review by email or any other feedback, then feel free to email us at filmlymatters at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at filmlymatters and check out our website at filmlymatters.com where you can read more about us, listen to full episodes, and read our film critiques and reviews. Thank you!